4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous-Tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans appear. 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. This is Mike Osborne, and my guest today is Mike Friedman. Friedman is a young filmmaker whose debut release is a feature-length documentary entitled Critical Mass. It explores population growth, human consumption, the limitation of planetary resources, and the impact of these forces on human psychology. I'm pleased to have him here in studio. Mike Friedman, welcome to Generation Anthropocene. Thank you for having me, brother. Uh, I'd like to start off by talking about the inspiration for the film. How, uh, how did this whole come about? Why, why did you want to look at the population issue? Okay, so population was something that interested me from as long as I experienced interaction in urban environments. I grew up in cities. I'm a city boy. I, I knew that I wanted to discuss it, and I noticed, having watched plenty of environmental documentaries, I noticed that Population was something that was either not mentioned or it was skirted around or it was kind of brushed aside very quickly. They tend to focus on impact and consumption. So, for instance, uh, you'll watch a film about fisheries and they'll talk about the uh, the depletion of fish, but they won't mention the fact that the upswing in depletion is matched by an upswing in human numbers as well as consumption. It's not to be disingenuous. Obviously, they're intimately connected, but that's exactly the point. They're intimately connected. They're not separable. So I knew I wanted to make a film about population, but I didn't want to make a Malthusian dirge. Uh, Thomas Malthus was a, uh, a clergyman at the end of the 18th century, and he wrote an essay on population, and he forwarded the idea that human population growth is exponential, but the increase in food supply is arithmetical. So that basically, at some point in the future, he posited, the human population would outstrip the ability of the food supply to feed them. Infinite growth on a finite planet, essentially. Yeah. But my point was, I, I wasn't interested in making a film that portrayed people as being an inherent ill for the planet, that we were somehow destroying the planet simply by being alive, that we were consumers and that all consumption is bad, et cetera, et cetera. I don't believe that. And I didn't want to press that argument. So I was interested in telling the human story. And that was the challenge. How do you take something that is so heavily data driven and information based and tell a story? And that's when I found out about the work of Dr. John B. Calhoun at the National Institute of Mental Health in Washington, D.C., uh, between 1958 and, I believe, 83 when he retired, Calhoun ran experiments in rodent population dynamics. So he would introduce rats uh, and mice into enclosures where they were supplied with food, water, and nest material. Then he would chart the development of the population. He'd see how quickly they reproduced, what the trend of that growth was, and then look at the society as it progressed. 
and he found some very interesting and worrying things, which he believed, and I also believe, have parallel relationships to the human situation. So it's important to point out, I'm not suggesting that, that what rats do in a box in a basement is necessarily what humans will do on the subway. That's not what I'm saying. What is the case, however, is that rats and mice like most animals, especially mammals, have complex behaviors and simple behaviors. Those behaviors are impacted by crowding, by stress, by interaction with one another. They do have a society in that sense. And, and likewise, humans have simple and complex behaviors which are impacted by crowding, stress, density, and relations with others. So in that sense, it's a, it's a framework or a structural comparison rather than an explicit metaphor. And it is the metaphor that, that you use to structure the film. Well, exactly so. So when I found out about Calhoun's work, that gave me my narrative. I read about his experiments. I saw within them instantly that structural comparison. So I therefore had my narrative. I could tell the story of the experiments, and then along the way I could just hang the human story on it. So that allowed me to tell the story of our societies, of our growth from antiquity to the current day. Uh, the development of our technology, the development of our co increased complexity, uh, the development of our relationships with one another in increasingly crowded cities and societies in parallel with the story of the rats and mice. Well, you, so you hit on this a second ago. I mean, there are pros and cons to this metaphor, right? I mean, th that you're right. We're not mice in a laboratory, but we are, you know, to get back to it, we are a uh, seemingly infinite growing species on a finite planet. So I, I, I'd be curious to hear you elaborate a little bit more on where the metaphor really works for you and where it doesn't. There's a filmmaker I have a lot of respect for named Werner Herzog, and he compares the ecstatic truth to the accountant's truth. The way he puts it is that, you know, you can find out about John Smith you can find out what his address is, what his telephone number is, what his shoe size is. But this is the accountant's truth. The ecstatic truth is, how does he feel when he goes for a walk in the park? What does he dream about at night? What is it that he writes in his diary that no one else sees? Those are the ecstatically truthful things about John Smith. And in the same way, I think environmental activism and particularly environmental storytelling documentary falls frequently into a trap of getting bogged down in the accountant's truth. We tend to think that the data will speak to our soul, and it doesn't. It's, it's a compelling way of pointing somewhere. But as I believe it was Mr. Miyagi said, you look at the star, not the finger, right? right. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Nice karate kid drop there, by the way. <laughs> well, what can I say? Yeah. I'm a child of the 80s. So uh, that's the uh, the issue for me that that the metaphor is not a direct statement that humans are rats and what happens to rats happens to humans when they're crowded uh, to me it is that the metaphor points to an ecstatic truth it is not an accountant's truth by showing us something that is unlike us the rats i'm talking about and yet so like us when we look at the story of their lives that is very powerful because we see ourselves in it instinctively. This is a very human trait anyway. We anthropomorphize most things. There's a great, the, the show Community that I'm a big fan of, there's a, a fantastic moment where Joel McHale is uh, giving a speech about how special human beings are and he holds up a pencil 
and he says, uh, humans are so special that if I tell you this pencil's name is Steve and then break it, then he snaps it. A little part of you dies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is the thing, right? That we tell stories because it helps us put ourselves into something else. It helps us to, to view ourselves through a, a prism or in a mirror that we didn't previously have. And so to me, uh, the metaphor of the rats works because Calhoun himself felt that there was a powerful message there. He called them rat cities. He, he called the enclosures uh, where there were little places for them to sleep. He called those apartments. You know, he, he had a very fine-tuned uh, idea that he was working on what happens to humans in crowded, stressful situations by looking at them. But he did not, as I'm not suggesting we should, he did not make that an explicit comparison. He was pointing to an ecstatic truth, which is that we're up to something. We're changing not only the planet, but ourselves. And that as we change, what we perceive as real and important and uh, positive or negative changes with us. And so ultimately, the intention of the film was to open a conversation. It was never meant to kind of tie something up neatly and drop it in people's laps. It was always intended that this would open a door and allow ourselves to begin discussing population side by side with all the other issues that we already discuss because it is very important and there is something else that I would say which is the other caution I had when coming at this is that population frequently has been related to population control people automatically assume that if you want to talk about population you want to talk about population control that if you want to open a discussion about human numbers and how we relate to one another on our planet, that somehow what you're really doing is you're trying to guide us towards a place where we're putting something nasty in the water supply or where we're tying people's tubes or where we're deciding who gets to quote unquote breed and who doesn't. And that's something that I'm very much against. I made sure that I read up as much as I could on the eugenics movement of the early 20th century, on the interplay between the American and British eugenics associations and what later became the Nuremberg Laws. And, and there has been an unfortunate relationship between the early eugenics movement and the early nature conservation movement in the US and UK. And the point is that that guilt by association has made it very difficult to discuss population in a clear-eyed, straightforward manner because people automatically assume you're simply trying to smuggle in some kind of unsavory dictatorship through the back door. And obviously, I, I'm not in favor of that. And so for me, it was about showing that we could discuss these things rationally, directly, and openly without relating them to this unsavory past that needs to be addressed, needs to be known, but doesn't... Yeah. yeah, it needs to be acknowledged, but it doesn't need to be the thing that defines the debate now. Right. Well, but, okay, on one hand, I see that a lot of global environmental problems, and not even environmental problems, a lot of civil strife can really be reduced down in some ways to this issue of population growth. I mean, it is sort of the the base of, of so many problems. But I... I in as much as there is a debate, what is the debate? I think that we don't necessarily want to institute some sort of dictatorial population control through, you know, through an authoritarian government. 
I think we can discard that. I, I think um, we can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I do think that, that a point your film makes, uh, and is a point a lot of people have come to, is that a lot of this does come down to uh, education of women, especially in developing countries, access to birth control, access to good health care. But is that the debate? Well, let's take a step back. Let's think about what society is. So I'm fond of the way that Calhoun would describe it, which is a society is a network of individuals communicating effectively. At its base, that's the best description of a functioning society. So when you ask what is the debate, first thing is population growth is definable, it is objective, it is measurable, and it is present. However, the debate, unfortunately, tends to gravitate towards that because you can argue about numbers. I'm more interested in the population side, not the growth side. The growth side is a genuine issue and definitely needs to be discussed. However, the people are what interest me. It's why I made this film. When you're talking about population, you're not talking about statistics. You're not talking about numbers on a spreadsheet. You're talking about human beings, real human beings with lives. Yeah, we're not a figure. E we're, exactly. We're, we're, we have brains and souls. It, well, exactly. My, what, I'm, what I'm pointing to is that, for me, this idea of a network of individuals communicating effectively is really about the humans themselves, not necessarily about how much they have to eat, even though that is an issue, or how much water they have, although that is an issue. It's about the quality of that communication. It's about the liberty, education, and self-realization of those individuals. And it's about maintaining and developing and increasing the efficiency, the efficiency and the quality of the network. And so things that lead, for, lead to one of those factors breaking down can be said to be negative for society as a whole. So if you have a bad school system uh, or you have a, a government or a religious imperative that stops certain individuals from being fully educated and fully realizing themselves and being free in the sense that they are given the tools with which to comprehend and interact with the world on their own terms, then you are lessening the individuality of those people. And by extension, you are also decreasing the effectiveness of their ability to communicate. Anything that challenges one of those factors, the network, the individual, and the communication, is essentially the debate I'm talking about. I hope that's a, a decent answer to your question. No, it is. And I mean, it's, listen, as soon as we start talking about global population, nothing gets simple. Maybe a more crass way of putting it is we've got so many people on the planet that we need to figure out something for everyone to do. Uh <laughs> well, this, no, it's a very good point, right? This is exactly, this is the challenge. In a complex society and in a, a densely populated society, we have what I call the circus problem, which is everyone likes going to the circus. No one wants to shovel the elephant dung. So the point is someone needs to do it. Now, what do you do? Do you just enslave someone and force them to do it? Well, that's what we've done for quite a large portion of our history, but that's not pleasant. And we've decided culturally in the past couple of hundred years that that's unsavory and we're not going to do it. So what do you do? Do you generate a system of uh, wealth and education inequality that allows you to take advantage of the unrealized potential of a certain echelon of people and then enforce a kind of wage slavery where they know they need money and you know you have the money to pay them to do it? Or do you come up with a certain way where whoever has to shovel the elephant dung 
knows that they are taken care of by the circus in general in a way that makes them not feel taken advantage of. And at the same time, everyone else bears a, a greater burden proportionately so that it's not as unpleasant for the person who has to do it. I mean, equality is the undercurrent of this entire conversation. And it seems to me that that's actually your desire to have more equality in the world writ large is, is at the heart of your motivation for making this film. I, I'd say that this film has been, in a way... I've been making it for two years. It's been kind of a university for me. I've met. No, I can imagine you know, the so, process of it must have been. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm sure, and I actually would like to hear your thoughts on this as well, how your thinking evolved through the course of it. Well, this is exactly what I was going to say, that, that your point about the equality is well made uh, and, and gratefully taken. It's been a very, very intense education. And over the course of that, I learned not only about the world I live in, and about my fellow human beings, but also about myself, both through meeting these people, learning what they shared with me, and also then going through the process of making the film. And in that sense, equality has become my understanding of the biggest issue, whether it's gender equality, racial equality. There's a the famous story of, uh, of doctors working in the Nazi concentration camps who were very kind to their patients, would give them extra rations and would smuggle them in and out depending on, you know, what they could do in quotations. But none of the doctors ever questioned the existence of the concentration camp. They only were the best person they could be in the framework of that. And this is a real issue. People are only as good as the situation they're in allows them to be. The environment in which people are placed does to a certain extent dictate or inform their behavior. So it's not just about wanting in some kind of abstract, liberal, well-meaning sense, uh, more equality. It's about seeing with a clear eye, seeing how the structure, the, the social environment, the physical environment, the political environment, the, the psychological environment, how these things dictate the inequality that we experience. Uh, what's sort of next? Well, I want to make sure we have an opportunity to talk about uh, upcoming shows uh, where, you know, distribution for people who are interested in watching Critical Mass. I want to make sure that uh, you get your plugs in. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I'm curious what you're interested in tackling next. I mean, this must have opened tremendous doors in your mind. You, like you said, the last two years were like a university education. I mean, you dove into this subject with incredible intensity, passion, specificity, and it must have, you know, it must have sent you spiraling in many different directions all the time. What's hung on? What, what, what's, what, what, what's next? Well, first of all, that's absolutely true. And it, it's worth pointing out that nothing will convince you how little you know more than learning a little. <laughs> and so in that sense, it's more than at any time in my life. My life awakened a tremendous hunger for more knowledge, more learning. In this conversation, I've touched on a few points that are actually present in a book that I'm working on at the moment. One of the things that were common in uh, some of the screenings we've had for Critical Mass in the Q&A is that people ask about the future. In the film, we primarily talk about how we got where we are, where we've been, uh, where we are now, and what, what that looks like. So it's a common question, where are we going? What's the future going to look like? What do you think is going to happen? Uh, that's the exact subject of the book that I'm working on now, which is called The Revolution Will Be Improvised. The film itself, uh, Critical Mass, 
we just finished two shows at the Mill Valley Film Festival. The film has offers of distribution in Italy, the UK, and the US, but we use archive footage in the film which requires commercial clearance in order to distribute it. And we are running an Indiegogo campaign to raise the money we need for the archive clearances so that we can distribute the film. And that's at indiegogo.com forward slash critical mass. Uh, the website for the film is criticalmassfilm.com. And uh, hopefully we will go over the top on Indiegogo, which will put the film out in theaters and DVD in Italy, uh, DVD in the UK, digitally in the US. And obviously we're hoping for other territories because one of the great things about population is it's a film that's universal. The way I put it is we like going to the movies because we like seeing stories about people. And what's more compelling than a film about all the people? <laughs> well, it's an incredibly well-crafted film and it's uh, a no doubt an incredible undertaking. So congratulations on it. And thanks for appearing on uh, this episode of Generation Anthropocene. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. We want to thank co-producers Tom Hayden and Miles Traer for all their behind-the-scenes work, as well as Leslie Chang, Maxine Luckett, and Sam Larson. Special thanks to Pam Madsen, Dean of Stanford School of Earth Sciences. A very special thanks to Maserati for letting us use their song, Monoliths. Thanks also to KZSU Stanford 90.1, where all of our interviews were recorded. You can find past episodes of Generation Anthropocene at anthropocene.stanford.edu. Follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. History is accelerating, and you're a part of it too. Where would you draw the line? <laughs>